Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 188 of the Intercooler Podcast with me, Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel, my co-host. Now, this week, we're talking about tyres for classic cars and why it's so important to find the right tyres for your classic. And actually, we're joined by an expert on the matter, Dougal Corley from Longstone Tyres, who can tell us everything we need to know about tyres for your classic. We also talk about the RAC rally, that's the Roger Albert Clark rally, which I was spectating on last week. And we sort of wrap up the 2023 Formula One season now that that's all finished as well. Um, Before we get started, I will just remind you all to rate and review the podcast. And we want a good rating, please, and a very positive review. Um, Please do that. It helps us enormously. And while you're doing it, hit the little follow button or the subscribe button. That helps us a lot, and it means you won't miss an episode. So thank you for doing that, and enjoy this one. Dougal Corley from Longstone Tyres. Now, we've got you on the podcast, and thank you for taking the time to join us, because Andrew and I have this theory, right? And you're the man to ask about this. Are, we, we know that tyres are fundamentally important on any car. Are they actually more important when we're talking about classic cars? Uh, they do have a large effect of the feel of the vehicle. And I guess they are really important. So what, what are the main problems that people, uh, the main mistakes that people make is they consider a modern tyre to just be a better tyre. And in a mm. lot of circumstances it is but only when it's used in an environment that's suited to that tyre. So the geometry of a classic car and the steering of a classic car and the suspension are all dramatically different, so they suit a different kind of tyre. Um, if you, I think the easiest example is if you look at a modern you know, sort of Merc parked up on the forecourt with some steering lock on, you'll notice that the front wheels poke out of the wheel arches at at an odd angle. Um, And that's that's caster. Um, And that has quite a big effect on your steering. But a modern car will have all sorts of different things within the geometry of the steering that overcome the derogatory effects of this massive amount of caster, um, which you don't have on a classic car. Um, Another large difference with a classic car, you know, before a certain age... Um, is that the as a car leans on the cornering forces, the wheel will stay parallel to the side of the car. Whereas on a more modern car, as a car leans on the cornering forces, the wheel will add adverse camber. And all that mm. very cleverly keeps that big fat square footprint of tyre completely in contact with the road. So with a modern car, we are talking about much cleverer systems in there to give you ultimate grip. Now, there's a big difference between ultimate grip and handling. And when you drive a classic car, part of the joy of it is you sort of, you know, you drive it a bit more on the throttle pedal and you use your sensors 
to feel what's happening with a with a car and you drive it accordingly which is very different to a modern car where it's just ultimate grip so you know if we look at our heroes like sterling moss drifting around the corner and the back end is stepped out a little bit and the front wheels are drifting a little bit as well that's part of the joy and the excitement of driving a classic car um, and when you start putting more modern tires on there then you you lose all that so more modern tires designed to have more ultimate grip um, and it's not developed to give you the feedback to the steering wheel so we might look at this system and think to ourselves I don't really care about having all that progressive handling for drifting around corners because I'm, you know, I'm only going to drive my classic Merc at a steady pace, and you know, I'm not too bothered about the progressive handling. Well, th there's more, there's more to it as well. Um, so uh, the rounded shape will keep steering lighter and thinner, which is effectually faster and more precise. So the steering just feels nicer with an appropriate tyre. Even when you're not thrashing it, it just feels nicer. Um, and then also more, more modern tyres, with them having this squarer carcass uh, to them, the, the, the shoulders of the tread pan are um, uh, more sharper and more square. And so the knock-on effect of that is when you're driving down, you know, a dual carriageway with these dreadful rutted roads we've got by our old heavy lorries, that picks up the outer edges of your tyres and it, and it pulls the car in the direction of those ruts. That, that's, that's called tracking. And it's just an unpleasant experience, you know. To have a more suitable tyre with a, with a rounded shoulder to it, the correct diameter, um, and, a, and a carcass that is designed to go on, you know, relatively thin rims and to give you feedback to the steering, they're all the things that uh, improve and increase the pleasure of, of driving these daft old cars that arguably so many people say we should have scrapped however many years ago, but they don't know how much joy we get out of them. Uh, and I think that the right tyre does, does increase the amount of joy you get out of driving a car. That is a comprehensive answer and explanation <laughs> as to why classic car owners need to put the time and energy into finding appropriate tyres for their classic car. That's fantastic. There it is. And get your mod out as well, by the way. I'm very sad to say. So, we, you know, I'd like to say that uh, you quite often have to pay more for a proper tyre. So, within, within there, there are tyres that profess to be classic tyres, um, and, and, and often they're just simply tyres that are designed in the right size. They've got the right size written on the side all the time. It's not quite as simple as that. Immediately, it has the word classic written on the side of all the tyre. Well, it isn't, is it? It's clearly some kind of... Somebody's trying to flog you with tyres a classic tyre. The right carcass shape is worth it, and, and they're often made by the top manufacturers. Currently, I would say the best tyre manufacturers for classic tyres are probably, you know, uh, Michelin and, and Pirelli. Dunlop do pretty good as well. Avon, let's hope Avon keep it together, because we're concerned about them at the moment. But they, they do a few good bits and bobs. Um, but, but, but the right thing is, is worth spending a bit more money on. You know, they're on there for a long time. Spend a bit of money on them, get the right thing. So uh, let's move. So I'm just going to just going to go back a little bit. Cause the other thing that people consider about a modern tire as a better tire is because they assume that the manufacturing of it and the compounds um, and all and all that element of the quality of it uh, would be better today. Now that's true, 
over the years we have improved the quality control systems in 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 factories you know um the 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 sort of attention to detail and the x-raying of tires that are done these days mean that when you buy a tire it's it's not going to fail um you're buying a much better made piece of kit and the classic tires that are made by these um top brands are made with modern quality control systems so you know you're just not going to get let down with the tire that the quality is there um okay so 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 Dougal, so on that so I mean, you see, I have just, as, as, as I think you know, I've just sourced some new tyres for my 2CV from, yep. from your good selves. Um, so that tyre, which is visibly identical to a tyre that would have been on that car when it was new in 1958, presumably the compound and the construction and everything else about it is the same. The only difference is it's just made to higher, better standards. Is that, is, is that correct? Or is it a... A slightly different tire which just looks the same right so the 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 law states that a lot of the materials we used to burn holes in the ozone layer while we were manufacturing tires were no longer allowed to use so the current tires sure. you have are greener so the knock-on effect yeah. of that is that the compounds are different to what was used in the day so the carcass this is a, the, the carcass is designed to give you the same responsive feedback. Some of the materials within there are different to what was used in purpose, but the carcass presents the tread pattern to the road yeah. in the same manner yeah. it did in the day. Then, so it'll feel the so same. So it feels the same. And then the compounds yeah. are improved. Now, what's the advantage of a modern compound? Greener. Uh, the other main advantage with modern compounds is, is they move water a lot better than they did in period. Okay, so what moves water? Tread patterns help. So if you go directional, it squirts the water outside. But compounds, very important to, to shifting water. And, and the whole aquaplaning thing is not so much of a problem on a classic tyre car when you have tyres the right size. Aquaplaning is enhanced, enhanced by fitting fatter tyres, just more likely to aquaplane. But keeping the yeah. right size tyre in your car will, will diminish the... The, the chances of aquaplaning and the modern compounds will will also diminish the chance of aquaplaning compared to what happened back in period. So, Dougal, I mean, you are clearly uh, <laughs> a world leading authority on this. Can you just tell us a bit for people who haven't heard of your company? Can you just tell us a bit about Longstone Tires, um, when it started, how it came about, um, what it does, how many tires you sell? Just just to give us a, a very brief sort of highlights of, of the company, because you know I, I wouldn't get my tires from anybody else, but um, I'm sure not everybody knows about you. Well, uh, we are pur- purveyors of specialist rubber equipment for a gentleman to enjoy himself during the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Steady on, easy tiger. Um, but but it's you know so uh, I've done all sorts of things over the years, and but I've always liked after old cars. I mean, I grew up with a scabby old Lagonda in the garage, which I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but my dad bought a Lagonda saloon back in the 70s, ripped the body off it, and he was about to chop it down into uh, an open tourer, which us lot in the vintage car world kind of scathe them out these days, but what happened in the 70s was very different. Um, so I grew up with a Lagonda in the garage and, and an interest in daft old cars. Um, and 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 I, you know, I went travelling as a young man. When I came back, my dad had managed to achieve a lifetime dream of buying a, a change driven Fraser Nash, Anzani 1925 car, which is still kind of, you know, uh, one of one of the nicest cars. It's just a lovely thing. Um, so 
I, I kind of grew up around it, and then I got into trialing and things like that. And and I I was running a business as a tree surgeon, um, some some oh, well, that's probably twenty five years ago now. And, and me and my dad were just discussing the future of a chap running a business as a tree surgeon. Well, bad back, slice a limb off, all sorts of difficulties. Where you know, so I was looking for something else to do. Um, that might be a bit more less time consuming, less hard work, less dangerous, and hopefully a bit more profitable, you know. So, uh, and we've been going to VSCC race meetings, and my dad spotted an A4 piece of paper dangling off the tent of the tyre dealer at vintage race meetings. Um, and it was run by a fine chap called Mike Hurst. Um, and I sort of uh, talked to him about the possibility of taking that on as a, as a bit more of a less dangerous way of making a living for a while. Um, and I also decided that it wouldn't, it just wouldn't work um, if it wasn't something I enjoyed doing. So I worked with Mike Hurst for the rest of that summer um, and learnt my trade and uh, <clears throat> and helped Mike and uh, learned a lot about tyres. And, and, and then I took the business over in October 1999. And I've got to tell you, I was probably ringing Mike up two or three times a day asking him technical questions. Um, but when you're running a business like that yourself, you learn pretty fast and you get very involved in things. And, and when we first started doing it, it was very much a smaller business and, and really only involved in pre-war car tyres. So, and, and that's fine because, you know, pre-war is really my passion. That's, that's, that's the stuff that I really am into. And I, you know, and around and a sort of year or two into business, I bought myself a Model A Ford that I went trialling with and, and drove as my everyday car to uh, go to work. And back at the time, I was living 10 miles away from work. So I was probably doing about about eight to 10,000 miles a year in a, in a 1928 Model A Ford, including driving to and doing all the VSCC trials uh, and a few of the MCC ones as well. Um, and, and the future of the business, I thought, must be moving into the fact that there's, it's a rolling area of interest in cars. So started pre-war, and then the 50s and 60s cars were, were struggling to get hold of tyres. Um, so generally speaking, your big sports... <laughs> Things have changed a lot, haven't they? Generally speaking, your big sports cars in the 50s <laughs> fit in a 616 cross-ply tyre. Like, you know, nearly all of them. Pretty much most of the Ferraris, Maseratis, Aston Martin DB2, 3, uh, 4, and, uh, yeah, and, and the first series of DB4s, XK Jags. Uh, pretty much all the big sports cars fit in a 616 cross-ply tyre. And then the, the radial alternative to that is a 18516 um, so Avon came up with kind of modern sort of track day sporty tyre, which is pretty good. But the other one out there was a Michelin X, which is a 1946 tyre. Um, and then um, Pirelli made a, very erratically, made a Cinturato, which was the sports car tyre in the 50s and 60s. Um, so that, that started to be of interest. And we started moving from, um, from just doing pre-war cars into 50s and 60s. And of course then, you know, 60s stuff becomes more important and 70s tyres become obsolete and now we find that we're selling loads of tyres to 70s and 80s cars and we're even getting involved with you know making a few sort of 90s tyres now and, and, and edging our way into the, the this century um you know michelin michelin very unfortunately did a range of tyres for what we call young timer cars for the sort of 90s and noughties cars but, but, but very unfortunately they had them made in russia uh, poor old Michelin oh. didn't know, did they? And this range of tyres was starting to develop and people were getting interested in it. And then, of course, it's made in Russia and that all kicked off. So, 
doink, that's shut down. And we're kind of waiting to get that one sorted out again. You know, the, the world of production has been extremely difficult after the pandemic and after what that our friend in Russia did. Um, so it, it's been very difficult getting things made over the last period. But, but long stem ties has developed. Uh, so I would think a few years into the business, Michelin decided to reassess the way they distributed their classic range of tyres and that they wanted specialists around the world to uh, stock and distribute them. So, you know, why would, why would Michelin bother doing that? Well, the reason is they want to know, uh, they want a reasonable forecast of what tyres to produce. So it's very important for us to try and help the tyre manufacturers keep the tyres that we're selling fresh and not have a situation where there's 50 tyres stuck in the corner of a shed somewhere um, that get five, ten years old and then, we, and then they want to try and sell them. Michelin need to know that we're going to sell roughly that many per year. Um, our distributors around the world have got the stock of those and we can then, at that point, keep them fresh. Um, and, and, and provide a good service to the customers. And, and provide a service to customers from people who understand what they're talking about and will not try and flog people the wrong tyre just because they make more money. It's very important to us to get the right tyre on a car because I, I'm, not, I'm not here just to sell a, a set of tyres to somebody. If I sell somebody a set of tyres for a grand instead of 700 quid once, but then they resent what I've done, um, they're not happy about the tyres they fit and they don't come back next time and they tell the mates that Longstone did the wrong thing by them. That's not the way we work at all. We are very much down the route of getting the best tyre on somebody's car. Uh, we are a little bit uh, merciless when it comes to people's wallets. We think looking after your wallet is your job. We will encourage you to buy the best tyre for your car. We'll have a budget version. We will. But our recommendation will be regardless of cost. It will be what is the best tyre for your car. Then we, we, we can come up with something from there. Um, so we got going with Michelin, I think it's about 2005, something like that. Um, and we were helping them do their range, and that worked really well for us. I think we've got Monsieur Mabendum waving at us through the window in the background. Um, and things worked well with Michelin, and then we became, because we were with Michelin, and we were dealing with wheels quite a lot as well, we then hooked up with a, a wheel building company called Barani, um, from Milan, who make all the sort of posh wheels for Ferraris and uh, Maserati and stuff like that and, and things work really well with Barani they, they're not cheap but they are excellent um, and their their quality control is very thorough now and the chap who runs that in Italy called Matteo is you know he's an extreme anorak I mean I, I can ring him up about a wheel and he knows, I'll say I need a wheel for such and such a car, he knows the part number of the wheel off the top of his head and he knows all the intricate details of the spoking pattern of all these wheels. It, it, it's exceptional, the levels of anoraking amongst some of the people within our trade. Um, so, got things going nice with Barani, and then, and, then, and then one day I've been chasing the 185.16 Prelice Interato for, for all the uh, masses of the 50s and early 60s and, and Ferraris, and it was, you know, it's the best sort of radial tyre for an XK Jag. So I'd been chasing these tyres and getting nowhere with Pirelli. I just was frustrating. So, and then I got I got an email contact from from Pirelli, and two chaps uh, wanted to come and see me. And they're they're extremely smart. And at the time, I was spanking around in a rather manky old Daimler two hundred and fifty uh, V eight, you know, Mark two Jag. You know, I, I bought it for pennies, but it had a bit of a front end shunt. Uh, and the front was bent out, but it was mechanically extremely sound. And 
and it had a big rip in the back seat from I think one of my kids. But anyway, I picked up these extremely smart um, chaps from Pirelli who, you know, I think they got quite big jobs. And I brought them to Longstone Tires and I, and I said, "Hi guys, I, I don't know what you're doing here, uh, but if you've if you've come to tell me um, you've got some one eight five sixteen Pirelli Centrato's," I said, "I'll buy all of them in a sort of." with a bit of bravado and possibly showing off a little bit and anyway it turns out they got a lot of them and I mean a lot um, and they had several other sizes as well if I wanted those ones I had to buy all the other sizes and it was it was a big day really because I don't know I had to go and find quite a lot of money to buy all this extra stock from Pirelli um, but we did do and things turned out nicely and, and Pirelli had then I've sold all those tyres and then they've made me some more and they are nicely um, expanding the range, um, which is lovely because, you know, as far as the important tyres over the over the years go, you know, um, Michelin X from the, for, from the 40s was the first radial tyre um, and then the Prolis Interato in 1952 was the first sports car radial tyre. Um, so it's a really important tyre, and, and, and the Europeans took on that Cinturato pretty early, uh, and then 65, Michelin came out with the XAS, which is the first asymmetric radial tyre, um, and then, and also within this production, Michelin were making quite a lot of millimetric um, wheel-sized tyres as well, so Michelin have got quite strong owners to continue to make to make tyres for uh, the classic car world. Um, and then 68 is the next step. Uh, 68 is when um, low-profile tyres came in. So Pirelli did it with the CN36. Dunlop did it with SB Sport Aquajet. Uh, and, and Michelin did it with XWX. So that was a big change um, with the 70-profile tyres. But, but what's happened is that in the Pirelli of, of now, shall we say, celebrate their heritage uh, uh, and, get involved, and get involved in it, they've started to do... You know, we first we first started off with these um, six-inch tires for 50s cars, and then they've now moved into the CM36 for 70-profile tires for things like your early uh, Porsche 911s and the RSR and things like that. Um, and then since then, they've stepped into doing the P7, which is also, you know, a really sexy tread pattern that we all know from that Lamborghini poster. You know, back in the 80s, We'd all got the poster. But that, but that, that was the first sort of ultra-low profile tyre, wasn't it? it? That was when you got, you got, you got like a sort of 50% profile That's on right. And that, and that was probably with the, with the P7. Um, and yeah. so they've made tyres for the Countach. Um, they've recently just done a very important tyre for the, for the Detomasso Pantera. Uh, and what, let's say, what an ace thing. So with a tyre manufacturer, if I go to a tyre manufacturer and say, can you make this Porsche tyre? That's interesting because a tyre manufacturer wants to keep a good relationship with Porsche, right, because it's a future business with Porsche. But for Pirelli to take a step back and make a tyre for a Detomasso Pantera, there's no future in Detomasso for, for Pirelli. There's, you know, why would they do that? It's because they're really supporting our industry, which is, which is great. So, Dougal, are there, are there any cars... I mean, I know that, for instance, there was, a, for a long time, um, people couldn't really run their XJ220 Jaguars because you couldn't get... The tyres for them just didn't exist anymore, and... Who made them? I can't remember. Was it Bridgestone who made them originally? Or whoever it was just wouldn't make them. Are there any cars out there at the moment you just can't get tyres for because no one makes them in that size? I think the XJ220 was a particularly tricky one, wasn't it? Because um, Bridgestone said they weren't going to make them. Uh, and then I think Pirelli made them. And then I think Bridgestone made them. <laughs> so they went from yes. they went from drought to flood. Um, yeah. I can't think of anything you can't get tyres for. So there's, 
you know, you can always make a car go. You can always change the wheels and put something on it. But um, there's some very early veteran stuff we're struggling with at the moment. But it's really difficult because there might only be two or three cars that need them. And there's this chap in Belgium who'll carve you a new tyre out of solid rubber and build it onto your wheel. So we do have solutions for pretty much everything. But, but, it, it, but in the more modern stuff, they're basically, if you, I mean, so if you're thinking about buying an old car, don't worry about it because you will be able to get a decent tyre for it. Is, 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 that's essentially what you're saying. I think that is predominantly true. You can always get a tyre. You can't always get the perfect tyre. There are one or two. Yeah. There are one or two corners. So we've got one on the way from Pirelli at the moment. It's got a P7 for the Maserati by Turbo of the nineties. That so that'll be one more ticked off the list of a car that you couldn't get the exact tyre for. I think there might be. I think there might be one or two cars out there we do struggle with. We can make it yeah. work. We can't always have the perfect thing, but, 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 but more often than not, we can. But you have, so you you have sort of you know sufficient clout and influence that you can go to a company like Pirelli or Michelin, and go, you know, I've got a demand for this tire. You don't make it. Will you consider making it for us? Uh, we we can do that to a certain extent. Uh, it takes a long time. They're quite often expensive. Uh, yeah. And 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 it, the smaller volume of cars out there that fit it, the more difficult it is to make that happen. You can sure. imagine from a from a tire manufacturer. Let me just try and sort of give you some idea about the main hurdle of that. As far as my understanding goes, I'm not actually a tire manufacturer, but as far as my understanding goes, when a factory decides starts making a new size, they switch off the machine that's making tires, then they put the kit in to make the new tire, and they'll make a small batch of a few tires, and then they switch the machine off, and the machine sits there dormant while they put that tyre into their testing systems and they make sure that all the systems they've put in place to manufacture that tyre are all correct and the tyre that's going to come off that machine in the future is going to be of perfect quality. If it's not quite right, they adjust a few things and then they go again and make another batch. And then when all that's done, then they start making tyres. So a smaller batch of tyres... So what I'm getting at is there's a big downtime. There's a big downtime on the machinery to change sizes and start making a new one. So when I ask for a, a small batch of tyres, then I know full well that the, the tyre manufacturing factory would rather do a larger volume tyre because they've got less time when the machine isn't actually making them any money. Um, so, it, you know, these things can be done. And, and currently, Pirelli and Michelin are being brilliant about these things. It will always take time. It'll take a bit more time currently because we're totally on the back foot after the pandemic. But, it, it, you know, it can be done. And, I, and I, th- I think we pretty much will cover most of the tyres that people need. I'm now going to get, like, an onslaught of emails saying, I'm to say, uh, can you make me four tyres for this car? <laughs> but um, but we'll, we'll look into it and come up with solutions for people, pretty much, yeah. Can we think a little bit about owners of classic cars? I, I guess you guys, I know, you, Andrew, you are. Dougal, I guess you've got a classic car or two of your own. I, I'm not a classic car owner. Um, but it seems to me that, Generally, classics do very, very um, low mileage in a given year. And so, presumably, the tyres on a classic car can go off through age long before they've run out of tread. Is this a big problem among Just go and drive your car more, uh, is the real answer. So, when a, when a tyre is... True. But, but, do, but do, do too many people leave old 
um, gone off tyres on their yeah. classic cars? Is I, that a problem? I, you know, I think we sell more tyres to people who are taking tyres off because they're old and not good anymore, rather than because they're bald, which is which yeah. is sad. I, you know, I don't like doing that. Um, and, and the answer is drive your car more. Um, when a tyre's yeah. ten years old, um, it's shot. You know, just isn't doing the right job for mm. you anymore. I guess, I guess you know, try and try and buy uh, cars that all fit the same size tyre, and then you can swap from one to yeah. another. So, so, so Dougal, is there a way? And I genuinely, I know you can with uh, more modern tyres, but let's say you, you buy an old, you, know, you buy an old car, whatever it is. Can you tell? Is there something on the sidewall of that tyre which will tell you how old it is? Yeah. Okay. So let me explain that to you. Uh, it 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 only needs to be on one side of the tyre. So you might not have it on one tyre, but it'll probably be on one of the four in your car. There will be um, a panel in your tyre, which is, you can sort of tell. You can sort of tell that it's different to all the other letters and numbers on there, and that they're able to take panels in and out. So it looks different. It's got a ring around it. Uh, what's okay. not, what's, it's like an oval with flat sides on the top and bottom, and then rounded ends on it. There's a name for that, I can't remember what it was. Lozenge-shaped. Um, yeah. So, and in yeah. there, you should have four numbers. Okay? The first two numbers are the week, and the second two numbers are the year. So, if we had, I don't know what the year is now, 48-23, then that would mean it was the yeah. 48th week of 23. Right. If you've got three numbers, chuck it away, it's a 1980s tyre. If you've got three numbers and a triangle... Chuck it away, it's a 90s tyre. Um, so, generally speaking, you should have this, this four-number four, four number panel on there, and that's, you know, that's where they've done them this century. Now, you know, in the UK, we don't have any laws about uh, tyre age currently. Should they do that? Oh, maybe. Maybe they should. It can be a big expense for car owners when they do, but they're not, they're not up to it when they're 10 years old. Legally... Actually, I think our MOT laws are relatively lax on tyres as well. They say that as long as you don't have any, you know, if you get, you get a, a certain amount of perishing on the sidewall of tyres, um, as long as that the cracks in that perishing aren't to the depth where you can see the cords and the carcass, or the cracks aren't in the tread, then you know, then your MOT your MOT is fine. But when you can see the cracks, when you can see the the carcass inside the tyre. Through the perishing on the sidewalls and in the tread, then your your, your MOT failure, and rightly so. Um, yeah, but the problem the problem is, is is you know not all cars need MOTs anymore, um, and you know there are a lot of people. I mean, I mean, I think that people because they're not as switched on as focused about these sorts of things as, or certainly you are, maybe even someone like me is, is that they're not aware. For instance, that you know a set of tyres is only good for ten years, and that they should be thrown away after that. Um, and people go off and they buy old cars, you know, um, I think most of my old cars don't, requ- don't need to have MOTs anymore. And so you just kind of go with what you got because they kind of look all right and they don't go flat and there's plenty of tread left on them. And it's, you know, um, and, and presumably the problem isn't just that they will stop performing as well as they should. Presumably there are safety issues um, with tyres that are, you know, past their sell-by date or use-by date even. Yeah, I, I, you know, hardness and rubber as it gets hard will getting closer to a, um, a, you know, aquaplaning and not moving the water out of the way properly. And, and then, of course, there is also the blowout issue. Let's, let's not get to a state where one of us 
cheapskating on tyres has a blowout on a motorway and causes a problem because you know at that point they're just going to look at old cars and say uh, you know why why have we got these on the road shall we just also mention brake pipes as well for people who've got old cars let's have a bit of a thought about our brake pipes you don't want those popping um you know i think there's something (laughs) you know you know when your old car had to have its mot it was always a pain in the bum oh i've got to go to the mot again it was always a bit of a drag but in all fairness we were sort of glad of having a different pair of eyes look over our car and say do you need to change those brake pipes uh, you know it's it's not a bad thing i've had mot people pull up things on cars that i know full well i affect a lot and they pull me up on things and say you need to do that now Dougal, because you know it's getting to the point where it's it's not right so i've been glad of them um but they always were a drag. But uh, but I think out there, the things that, uh, you know, tyres are obvious. There's something you can do about those. You can see them. You can look at them. And your, your brake pipes, I think, are another, you know, major issue that not having MOT sort of worries me about, really. Dougal, so just we've managed to do half an hour there without even thinking about it. That's, you're clearly so such an expert on this matter. Um, but just to kind of wrap things up, <clears throat> your business, Longstone Tyres, is a very good canary in the coal mine for the classic car scene as a whole. So it's just interesting, finally, to get your thoughts on what's happening in the classic car world. Is it is it thriving at the moment? Are things um, growing? Are you seeing more and more people getting involved, uh, or is it the opposite? I think it has been doing. And, you know, if you watch telly, there's classic car adverts everywhere. You know, they're all over the place. So I think it has been going. I think over the last year or two, it's maybe sort of waned a little bit. But there's some ace bargains out there as a result of that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's pre-war cars that really float my boat. Um, but the other day I went, I bought, I bought a Delage DIS 1924. Now, this is those lovely big four-seat touring cars. It, it'll do 70 miles an hour if you wanted to. It'll do 55 miles an hour all day, every day. And I bought that two, two or three years ago now. I bet it's dropped 10 grand in value. And there's some lovely vintage touring cars out there. Four-seaters, just eight fun to poodle down the pub in. And you can, you can buy an Austin 12 for less than 10 grand. It's, it's, you know, why not? I mean, they're just ace fun. So I think when my dad was a kid, all the students were prattling around in vintage cars uh, because they were just cheap, bangonomics ways of driving around. And we're getting pretty close again. Um, so I think, you know, value-wise, pre-war cars have taken a bit of a hit. Um, you don't see... I don't think you see quite as many vintage cars on the road anymore. But there's so much stuff to do with them these days. There's, there's so many events on. Mm. So much fun to be had with your old car. And, and they're fun. If you're mildly mechanically minded, you can just get your hands dirty and get involved in them. And can, you, can you do that with a modern car? Open the bonnet. Is it diesel? Is it petrol? Who can say there's just a big piece of plastic in front of me? So, I, you know, I, I, mean, I like getting my hands dirty and getting involved with daft old cars, and I think there is a lot of fun to be had with them. Um, I, I, you know, like I say, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit anti-tech. I'm not terribly good at tech, so uh, post, post-distributor, I would feel a little bit lost. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be that happy um, dealing with that. But then I've got mates who are younger than me who don't see a problem with that. They just plug the computer in and sort it all out so you know you are able to keep all these cars going on the road we can supply the tires for you um and there's a lot of fun to be had i've just driven my 1924 delage down to bologna and back fantastic <laughs> can't think of a better way to spend a couple of weeks just brilliant the weather wasn't terribly good but who cares i went over the alps twice 
Um, I was driving down. <laughs> I did have to adjust the brakes after a bit. Uh, is, this, is this going live? So I was driving down this quite steep hill at one bit, and I got my foot flat on the floor of the brakes, and it it wasn't slowing down. <laughs> it was staying at the same. It wasn't accelerating. It wasn't slowing down. And I got my wife next to me in the car. I thought, I just I'll just not tell her about this. She doesn't need to know till we get to the bottom. Uh, and anyway, I got to the bottom, but just the brakes up because you just can because it's a vintage car. Um, and drove the rest of the way down to Bologna and then drove it home again. It, it was fab. Brilliant. Wow. You're a braver man than me. Dougal, thank you for taking the time to come and explain the importance of tyres on classic cars. Um, and there you go, TI listeners. Now yeah. you know. Um, right, Dougal, Ken, thank you very much. All the best. Hi, everyone. Dan here. Now, while you wonder if it's time to replace the tyres on your classic, I want to talk about VPNs. Many of us know what it's like to have our details or passwords stolen while we're online. VPNs, or virtual private networks, protect you from that. If you travel a lot with work and find yourself logging onto hotel or airport Wi-Fi networks, you could be at risk of this happening to you. We've partnered with NordVPN to offer our listeners four months free when you buy a two-year plan, and you get a fifth month free by using our exclusive link, nordvpn.com forward slash intercooler, or you can click the link in the description of this podcast. That's five extra months completely free. How many of us use the same password for everything, Maybe with one or two subtle differences. Yeah, I know. That means we're playing with fire. But a VPN can protect us from hackers and scammers. NordVPN offers a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can try it for yourself risk-free. Head to nordvpn.com forward slash intercooler to get five months free of charge. That's nordvpn.com forward slash intercooler, or click the link in the description. Right, let's get back to the podcast. Well, I think I just learned an awful lot about tyres on classic cars. But actually, I, I was thinking about tyres on classic cars last week, over the weekend, because I was spectating on the Roger Albert Clark rally. And one of the things I learned was that... So this is a, a historic rally, so a, a rally for historic cars. And one of the things I learned that really surprised me is that the guys running at the front of the field who are trying to win this thing, it's a five-day rally. It is an epic around the UK... The guys running at the front of the field will spend more than 30 grand on tyres. Wow. They'll, they'll get through close to 100 tyres. So it's really serious. It's unbelievably serious. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm so going to... So, so they'll have, so it, I'm about to reveal how little I know about rallying for the nth time. Is, does, this, does this rally all run on one side? Is it all gravel? Or is, is there bits of tarmac in it? And it's, it's all gravel, but they go from South Wales to, through Mid and North Wales into Scotland and then back into England, um, running through the different forest complexes. On and you said 100 the... tyres per car? Up to for the for the so leading 20, cars for the so leading 25, cars. 25 sets, yeah, yeah. Just chucking new tires at it all the time, and it's because if one guy does it at the front, everyone else has to. If you're trying to win the thing, otherwise you're stuffed. So it's a five day event. Yeah, it's still running. So you're get, it's still running today. So you're you're getting through five sets of tires a day. Yeah, up to. If you're if you're absolutely up the front, yeah, that's really. I mean, that's. I mean, that's that's amazing. I mean, that's like, <laughs> you know, long distance racing, isn't it? That's like. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, in the world in the world of historic racing, 
um you know you think of a goodwood weekend where you've got some practice and some quality and a couple of races um even the people right at the front aren't going to be going through anything like that because there aren't the opportunities you get one practice you get maybe one or two practice sessions one quality session and one race and then mm. you know and you're not mm. changing tires in the middle of any of that no so so that's you know in terms of money mm. it's uh, it costs a fortune i mean the so let me give you a little bit of background. This is it's called the Roger Albert Clark Rally after Roger Clark, the great rally driver. And they've called it, they were lucky that Roger Clark's Who, middle whose name initials a, was initials, Albert. Initials. Yeah, yeah, because they can call it the Roger Albert Clark Rally, and everyone just calls it the RAC. And the point is, it's supposed to revive the glory days of Britain's premier rally, which was always known as the RAC Rally. And yeah. this, we don't even we don't even have a rally anymore, do we? We don't. Not a round of the World Championship, no. Um, which is such a pity. And but even if we did, it would be nothing like the RAC used to be because back in the day, it was held over several days, five days maybe. Um, the stages would be epics. They'd run from early morning into late at night. Um, actually, there is a video of Nikki Grist talking about it. So even into the sort of relatively modern era the RAC was still like the RAC and he he talks about being on road sections all night long um, rallying all day and sleeping a few hours in 48 Um, they were proper endurance events however the, the pace at the front particularly in the later years was sprint pace and so the Roger Albert Clark rally um, it's run every other year it's been run since uh, 2003 or something maybe this is the 20th anniversary of its revival but it only runs every other year um, and I'm, I'm going to write about it because it is an unbelievable event and one of the most fascinating things about it is it attracts some sensational drivers so this year Chris Meek started it in a Ford Escort Mark II and he was leading until he went out um, and also Oliver Solberg Petter Solberg's son who I mean, he's just a lad, that boy, but goodness me, he can drive. He is yeah, a yeah. hell of a talent. And so th- this this event is epic because it's so long. Um, the guys at the front, <laughs> it's it's this curious, it's like Le Mans these days. That is an endurance race run at sprint pace. And that's exactly what the RAC rally is. Um, and so you've got a field packed full of Mark II escorts with BDA engines and then a handful of other cars. There's a Lancia Stratos in the field that just sounds unbelievable. Oh, sorry. You, you put something on social with that kind yeah. of car. I don't think I've ever heard anything going through a forest sounding better than that. No, it's the best sounding rally car. Um, there's a couple of Triumph TR7s with V8s and a handful of 911s as well. But if you, if you remember the glory days of rallying, when they were epic events, when they were running through the night, when they were certainly in the dark, when the stages were really long, when the stage mileage was three, four hundred miles over the rally, um, when the cars were rear drive and sounded fantastic. Mm. If you remember those days fondly, this event is for you. It's, it's, I think, actually, it's one of the best rallies in the world for spectating. So where, where were you spectating from? So I was in a stage called My Heron on the Friday. Um, and this is in sort of mid-Wales, mid-North Wales. Um, and it's a famous old rally stage, one of the great stages. Um, and I, yeah, as I said, the, particularly the guys at the very front, there's a handful of them going absolutely as fast as those cars will go. Um, yeah. And because they're rear drive, because they're older cars, they have to be driven in a certain way. 
and it means they're absolutely massively sideways everywhere. So wow. it's just it's just fantastic. So yeah, I will I will explain why the rally is so special. But yeah, when I heard that the front crews would be spending thirty plus thousand pounds just on tires, I was blown away. And actually, I, I spoke to Richard Tuthill about it before the rally. Um, he was running in one of his nine elevens. Um, he he was running really well for a time, but he after he th- he got a puncture, the car dropped off a jack. He lost ten minutes or so, and I think he decided to call it a day after that. But before the rally, he was livid with the organisers for not regulating tyre use more closely because he thinks yeah. it's absurd that they're spending that much money and frankly that the carbon footprint is so enormous. Mm. Um, he says that on the, the classic safari rally, which is one of only sort of three, maybe four events in the world that compares with the RAC, he says on the classic safari, which is actually a much longer event, more like an endurance event than a sprint, they'll use maybe six tyres a day. So it's, it's very possible, it's very possible to to contain tyre usage. You just have to write a regulation around it. Um, but as long as it's unregulated, uh, uh, there'll be some people just chucking tyres at it at the, every and, opportunity. And, and to me, the real problem with this is it just keeps people away. Mm. There'll be any number of people um, who haven't got the means to spend a substantial five-figure sum just on tyres. Mm. And also, presumably, the support team that you need to be able to fit that number of tyres in, yep. in, in, in that period of time. Who will just think, well, you know, why bother? Because mm. I'm never going to come anywhere. I'm going to put myself and my car at considerable risk. And, you know, I don't mind if I don't win, but I want to you know, be able to give a good showing. Mm. And that's not possible because you've got people out the front with essentially unlimited budgets. Just, you know, and it's always the ways. And I know it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it was ever thus in motor racing and, and all forms of motorsport, actually, that the people with the most money tend to win. But... As you say, when it's as simple as writing a regulation mm. saying that you are allowed X number of tyres, or if you use more than that, you're going to get mm. Y amount of penalty, then it just becomes... <clears throat> it does, everything is good then, because not only does it inca- will it mean that you know, people of less extravagant means will be able to take part, it also means that even if you're up the front, you're going to have to think... You're going to have to think really, really hard. And also, you mm. might just cock it up because maybe you'll put the wrong tyre on it and you won't have an alternative because you're, you know, you're going to run out of your allowance or whatever. So it's, it's a great leveller, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Yeah, it is. Um, <clears throat> and the people, out the, you know, people with the money will probably still do best because they'll have the best engines and the best backup and everything else. But with something as simple as tyres, which is, as mm. you say, so easily regulated, <clears throat> it seems a nonsense to me that that's not done. Mm. Yeah, it's done in Formula One, isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah, so I, I guess the flip side is that, you know, I've just celebrated how hard the guys are driving at the front of the field. Well, they wouldn't be doing that if their tyre life was critical. So perhaps it becomes well, less well, of a spectacle well, would, for the spectacle. Well, wouldn't for the they? Fans. Because, you know, they're not going to be backing off because they'll know there'll be somebody out there who's just throwing caution to the wind and having a real go. And, and if that person gets through, then they've won. So well, I that's think, actually I think the nature be... of the rally. That is the nature of the rally. The, the guys at the front... They don't treat it like a marathon. They go sprint all the way yeah. through and just hope that the car lasts. And actually, exactly. it's been so attritional this year. It hasn't really worked for any of them. But yeah, it's anyway, a fantastic, a fantastic rally. Um, I did just mention F1. We had the final race of the 2023 season yesterday. 
And there's yeah. not a great deal to say about the race. Maybe not a great deal to say about the season. Other than you do have to commend Red Bull and Max Verstappen for, frankly, an unbelievable campaign this year. Well, Just sensational. Yeah. 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 It's staggering. It really is. So bravo to them. Let's hope we never see that like the likes of it again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think there's anything in any way conflicted between on the one hand feeling nothing but admiration for the job that Red Bull do, did this year and on the other hand hoping they never ever get to do it again. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I, I, you don't ever want to see that kind of dominance again, do you? And I, I know some people say that there were okay maybe not for the title but they were there were good fights in the championship for the for the lower orders and what i just i just don't care about that stuff i want to no. see two or three remembers. guys two or three guys fighting all the way year long for the championship yeah i mean and I, I was listening to i mean, actually watched most of it at times 30 i'm afraid um because you could just see what kind of race it was going to be but like you know i i, I was hearing on commentary um you know it's so important the battle for you know second place in the constructors yeah. between yeah. ferrari and mercedes but it's so important but not for the viewing public no. not for the spectators not for the fans the people who actually pay for it it's about the money because if you come second you get 10 million quid more than you do if you come third mm. that's why it was important well I'll, you know fine i completely understand why that's important for the team just a lot of money but for us, yeah, the people okay. sitting there, you know, looking at our television screens, it couldn't matter less. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, 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 you know, I, I think I think Mercedes did do it, didn't they? They, I think they yeah. came second in the constructors, and Ferrari came third. I, I couldn't care less. No, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> um, let's just hope for a more competitive year next year. I mean, frankly, I can't see anyone actually catching Red Bull and knocking them off their perch because they are so far ahead. I, th- I think what you have to hope is that years like 2023 are the exceptions. Yeah. I mean, even if you look back to, you know, 1988, um, when McLaren won 15 out of 16 rounds. So actually probably in proportional terms, a greater percentage win than mm. even Max had this year. Um, you know, they never did it again. Um, mm. Mm. And... You know, but the thing is, is, is they don't have to have that good a season, do you? You know, even if they only win half the races, um, you know, it'll all be it'll all be Max and he'll be champion again. Mm. Um, so I don't think that even Red Bull will think that they will be able to do as well. Um, but we just have to hope that someone comes from somewhere. Um, I'm really interested in Mercedes Benz because I don't know what's going on there. I hear all sorts of rumours about sort of disquiet and um, you know someone. Someone over the weekend actually said to me that, you know, that Toto is not in a good place. I don't know whether that's true or not, but um, they've really got to sort it out, haven't they? Oh, goodness me. Have they ever, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And well, for, and, but, also, but also, at the same thing, you know, Ferrari. You, yeah. know, Mercedes, you know, Ferrari are now, I think it is their longest drought, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, it's been a long time since they yeah. won a title. Long old yeah. time. Yeah, and, and you can't blame Red Bull for being too good. So, you know, those guys, they, they've just got to find a way. Yeah, they so have. easy to sit here and say that, isn't it? <laughs> it really you know, is. When, when, when they know that, you know, Red Bull probably knew in Bahrain <clears throat> this year, the very first race of the season, that both championships were going to be theirs at a canter. They probably knew that from the out, didn't they? Mm. When everybody finally showed their hands. And so they would have thought, well, okay, fine. So we, you know, we'll obviously, you know, keep an eye on it and we'll develop the car. But actually, how much earlier than anybody else did they just start? Or maybe everybody else saw that too and just thought, well, forget it. We might as well start developing our 2024 cars now as well. Maybe. So, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe. 
Well, the, the thing about Mercedes is that they went with this bizarre, unique concept for 2022 and amazingly stuck with it for 2023 and then midway through the year accepted it was a mistake and sort of rode back as much as they could. But of course, the basic concept was baked into the car. So it won't be until 2024 that they can actually revert to the concept that we know works. But will they even understand it particularly well from square Mm. one? Did you see that picture of the underside of Perez's car when it got lifted? Was it at Monaco? Yeah, it's so intricate. Compared to anybody else's. Mm. And I just thought, oh my goodness, Mm. these guys are just playing a different game. Mm. They're so far Um, and, and, and you know it's all very well to sort of see those bits there but to actually understand what they're doing and why they're doing it um i hope so because otherwise it's just going to be yeah mm. it's going to be a trudge isn't it <laughs> it is uh although well, we go it's been a busy show but we have got a listener question up question coming up in a moment once i've reminded you all to follow the podcast or subscribe to the podcast whichever app you're using most of you use either apple Podcasts or spotify And they both have a little button when you go into the podcast that says subscribe or follow. Please just hit that. It helps enormously and you won't miss an episode. So the listener question this week comes from Brian Thomas. It's a biggie, but we're going to try and tackle it in a couple of minutes. God. Where do you stand on SUVs? They're becoming more and more popular with buyers, but at the same time, they've never been more vilified by those who hate them. So there's this weird sort of paradox, isn't there? Yeah, they're they're bought in ever greater numbers, but they become more and more controversial with every year. Perhaps the two are well, the two are clearly linked. So, is there a sort of TI position on SUVs? Ah, uh, I, I think a lot of it. First, I think the first thing to say is what's an SUV? You know, yeah. is a a small compact crossover? Is that an SUV? Mm. I mean, you know, a Range Rover is quite clearly an SUV. Um, so. I mean, what are we even talking about now? You know, to me, it's all about fitness for purpose. Um, And, you know, I understand um, why people buy, why certain people buy those cars, because they genuinely work in their lives Um, in a way that, you know, if you live, if you tow, if you live in the middle of nowhere, um, if I don't know, you like skiing and you're going to the Alps um, or you have, you know, loads of kids or loads of kids and you need seven seats because your MPVs aren't something. And there are all sorts of legitimate reasons why those cars are necessary. What I find difficult about them are them being bought as fashion accessories. It mm. doesn't strike me as being a particularly useful, worthwhile thing to do. But at the same time, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell anybody that they shouldn't buy these sorts of cars. I mean, I wouldn't myself. Um, but that doesn't make me right and them wrong. I, I look at their weight um, and I look at the profligacy of them and, and, and the expense and I, and I know how much better to drive, faster, better handling, better riding, better in it, all ways that matter to me a, an equivalent estate car would be and I would just always buy the estate. But I think it's, it's difficult to come on here and say we're right and they're wrong. Mm. I could tell you what I think. I could tell you what's right for me, but I don't think I, I don't think it's it's right for me to say what other people should do. Yeah. Um, they're not my kinds of cars, generally speaking. But you know, others love them. So we, I've mentioned it before, but we have a, a BMW 3 Series estate as our family car. We got it two or three months ago, and we were looking at 
a, a handful of different options, including a couple of SUVs. The Volkswagen Touareg was one of them. Um, and, you know, we had a good look at those. We decided to go with the 3 Series in the end. I'm, I'm glad we did because it's a fantastic car. However, just by chance, I had a Volkswagen Touareg booked in um, last week. And I used it when we went to this rally. And they've just facelifted the, facelifted the car. Um, it's a fairly mild facelift. But I had the V6 diesel model. Now, we piled three guys in there and a load of kit. And we went charging off from Bristol into Mid Wales across some narrow, bumpy, tricky roads into the Spectator car park, which was really muddy. Um, it got really cold up on the stage. And so when we got back down to the car, it was nice to have something big and substantial and comfy to mm-hmm. pile back into. The point being, it was absolutely fantastic for the purpose that Except we, the purpose. That we yeah. put it to during That's what you need during SUV for. It was comfortable. On the winding roads in the middle of the Welsh countryside, it was surprisingly good to drive. It held itself together really well. Um, pretty spacious. It, for that sort of use, I thought that Tuareg was fantastic. And it's also, it's, it's little things like, you know, you're driving along those narrow lanes and something comes the other way. Um, and, you know, maybe the verges are high, maybe the verges are very muddy. For whatever reason, a normal car, you might be thinking, well, I'm really not sure I want to go mm. on there because I might get stuck um, or, you know, I might not get up that car. And, and, and it's something like a Tuareg. You can just think, well, it doesn't matter. I'll just drive off the road. Mm. And it's little practical applications in conditions and environments like that where they do you suddenly think and you know we know don't we that people always buy cars not for what they do every day but for the stuff that they might do it's why they buy audi tts rather than porsche caymans because they'll never use the rear seats but they like to know that they can if yeah. uh, if they had to and to know that you've got that extra little bit of latitude um to as i say as an example you know just to go off road to let something go past um or, or because you might find yourself in a muddy field at some local event or whatever, and just to know that you've got a car that can, it's quite a powerful draw. But I think the point to make is, I think at the same time, people need to understand the drawbacks and just how much they're losing as a result. Yeah. Not just on those very rare occasions when what those cars bring to the party actually really works, but every single day when you get into it. Because, yeah. as I said... Um, you know the fuel consumption is atrocious they're not very quick um you know they don't handle at all um and you know all these sorts of things all these sorts of problems which you always get with high and heavy cars and you can't really engineer your way out of mm. yeah so you need to be aware of the attributes the drawbacks and then make an informed decision based on your own circumstances it's quite simple really isn't it yeah sounds um, good there you go so brian thank you for your question remember to keep getting your questions across to us and we'll finish next week's podcast with another bye Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.